0: Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Nipur Nususha, and I'm a first-year MBA student at Wharton. And welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. And uh, today we are talking with Kaz. Uh, Kaz, can you help me pronounce your last name, please?
1: <laughs> sure. It's Kaz Najatian.
0: Kaz Najatian. I'm just sure I still didn't get that perfectly right. But uh, we are here with Kaz today. And Kaz is the co-founder and CEO of Cash which is a San Francisco-based mobile payment company that clears transactions without interchange or card fees and is guaranteed against chargeback. Uh, So essentially, the company gets rid of credit cards and middlemen that stand between bank accounts and retailers. And today we are here to talk about the company and also about Kaz And CAS broad interests include based on my internet research, payment systems, consumer products, social media. And from what I read, you're obsessed with uh, uh, studying consumer behavior. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I was, you know, I have a very typically immigrant background uh, in that, you know, we immigrated from Iran to Canada and my parents opened up a bunch of store, a bunch of stores. Um, So I was a nerdy kid who was like, you know, with a stopwatch, literally with a stopwatch, counting how long it would take for people to check out of the store and pay for their things. Um, So (laughs) my... I, I come to this, uh, you know, honestly, in a, in a, you know, this has been I've been a nerd my entire life.
0: That is fantastic. So curious to know what was the finding of your little experiment you ran over there.
1: Oh, you know, this is you know when you're when you're when you're a teenager, uh, and you try to give you know business advice to your parents about speeding up the queue. What people don't realize, I guess people do realize these days, is that almost the entirety of the margin. Um, in a corner store or a um comes from the stuff you sell around uh, the cashier. So cigarettes, oh, you know, cigarettes, Advil, those things. Those things are where the, where the margin is because everything else, you know, you don't have that much margin on and you don't sell it that frequently. So it turned out that, you know, that business was one of those places where people spending time around the cashier was actually a good thing because they're more likely to buy those things.
0: Oh nice. So you're in your thing then people who were prolonging their time in the lines, waiting to pay or just like hanging out there were basically high margin customers.
1: Yeah, it was it was it was the opposite of what you think would be in a you know in a regular oh, retailer. Oh.
0: Interesting. So <laughs> that is a fascinating insight and I think that's a great segue into our conversation. Because I'm guessing these are similar insights, a similar train of thought that you used to actually found your company. Uh, so we would love to know just a little bit more about you. And I think you mentioned you're an immigrant, but, you know, what is your story, uh, your background, and how did the idea of starting cash come to you?
1: Yeah, so it all comes, really, everything I do my life started from, you know, my mom's corner store uh, when, you know, when I was 12 or 13 years old. So, you know, because I was a family's, you know, nerd, I got the bank statements at the end of every uh, month for the stores my parents owned and uh month after month literally almost every single month uh the credit card processors made more money from my mom's store than my mom would um and this just infuriated me as a kid so uh i was you know probably 14 or 15 when i decided that i wanted to um do something about it i wanted to make you know Build a business that allowed people to accept payments without having to give away their entire margin. So this has been uh, my virtually my entire life. I spent, you know, I spent. Uh, I wrote my first payment business plan when I was in first year of college. My wife actually found it when we were moving uh, from Toronto to San Francisco. Then I was a payment lawyer for a while, and now I run a payment company. So I, you know, I know a lot about just just very narrow area of the world. Um, so it wasn't, you know, I wasn't one of those people who's always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, I just wanted to build, a you know, build a payment company. That was the only thing I cared about. I had no, I didn't want to do anything else.
0: That is brilliant. And it just surprises me so much. And not surprises, I think it's common that uh, when we talk to co-founders here at the Wharton Fintech podcast, So many of the companies that individuals have founded are based on really personal problems that they have seen growing up or in their environment. You know, it could be student loan startups or certain kind of supply chain financing startups. In your case, you saw a very visible thing that interchange was leading to credit card processors making a lot more money than the actual store, and that just, the economics did not make sense to you. Uh, So on that note, right, uh, just to help our readers understand a little bit, what really are your thoughts on the whole concept of interchange in terms of helping our readers understand why do you think the fees are so high and then why do you think they're not justified and what really is the alternative?
1: So the fees are high for actually fairly technical reasons, Um, but the world of payments, um, when you think of like um, non-payments made with something other than, you know, dollar bills in the U.S., the world really started to change in the early 1900s. So there was a you know group formed called the Association of Retail Credit Men uh, uh-huh. in New York in uh, 1906. Um, and that that world, the, the the primary problem they had was fraud. People coming in, buying stuff on credit, and just lying about who they are. Right. So when when credit cards were first invented. Uh, and they were invented again in New York in 1950s, uh, Diners Club being the first credit card. Um, they were meant to you know, reduce fraud. So the way they cleared was through a system uh, that is very similar to you know, the Telegraph. Um yeah. so it's a network system where lots of handoffs, we have lots of trusted parties, right? The bank trusts yeah. its counterpart, its counterpart and all the way along the chain. So The average credit card transaction in the U.S. today will go anywhere from, you know, 35 to 55 steps involving anywhere from, on the low end, seven companies, on the high end, you know, a couple of dozen. And each of those companies needs a margin, right? They're not nonprofits. They require money. Uh, So if the system was run as uh, a nonprofit, it would still be an expensive system. Like, it's not that there are, you know, it's not that credit card companies are evil. It's just the system is expensive and heavy. Um, but second problem is that it's practically a monopoly. Like it's a duopoly, but, you know, it's, it's not. It, yeah. it, um, so like everything else in a system that's, you know, controlled by very few providers, costs go up. Again, not because the providers are evil, but because, you know, there are inherent incentives the system. Yep. So, um those two things combined, that you know, the technology and the business model make it so that everything in the world is more expensive than it should be. Um because you know, payments credit card fees that don't just increase the cost to retailer, they increase the cost to consumers, right? A company like Walmart or a company like, you know, Safeway or whatever it is, can't run forever. At net losses. So if credit card fees go up, the prices go up, and the prices they go up, the price along the whole supply chain goes up.
0: Yeah, um, so everybody suffers.
1: Yeah. So you know. So you know. So if you think of you know cost of payments being you know just over one percent of GDP, that's a lot of uh, money. There are very few yeah. things in the world that cost one percent of GDP.
0: <laughs> that's true. That's like one out of hundred items basically costing that much. And, yeah. Uh, it's vast to think about. So then, if that's the case, uh, and that's I think precisely where Cash fits in, because uh, you have a company that is the only direct debit company in the U.S. And I'd love to get your thoughts on just the instant payment landscape here and the problems with ACH as an alternative. But the idea is that if people go through Cash, I'm getting, or I think I read this, uh, the transaction fees come down from let's say four to five percent to a half percent.
1: Yeah, we're we're almost so, always um ninety percent or more cheaper than the alternative.
0: That is fact. fantastic. But to help us understand how really exactly does the direct debit work, what is the actual payment rail that you guys are using? And how are you how is it so much cheaper compared to something else? Where, where I understand the monopoly thing adds the bit of pricing, but maybe the technology adds safety as well and just help yeah. us understand how with this low cost you're able to achieve both those things.
1: So there are, you know, if you think of like credit cards as being a system of trusted counterparties. Everyone right. trusts every you don't need to trust everyone so long as you trust the next person down the chain, everything works just fine, right? That's how credit cards really work. Um we replace that trust with software. So we say we don't need to know who the end person is, we don't care. We don't need to know who the retailer is, we don't care. We don't need to know who comes along the chain. We replace all of that with software it allows us to underwrite the risk of credit and risk of fraud. And because we remove all the intermediaries, like literally all of them, um, we remove some um, you know, some of what would be margin going to other people, but also some of what would be technical costs of other people. Um, right. So we, you know, we, do, we do the work of, essentially what the work that would typically be done by you know, seven or eight companies inside one company. So we're you know, we're a full stack, what's called a full stack company, and we do all of it. Um, and because, of, sorry, go no, ahead. Go
0: ahead, sorry.
1: No, no, Because be of, ahead. because of that, we can have massively reduced costs. And because we think we do a better job with software identifying fraud and credit problems than typical players do, we also can have lower costs, right? You know, so a credit card company, you apply for a credit card in the U.S. today, and they will run a FICO check on you, a credit score on you. And essentially, for credit purposes, what they do is they essentially run the same FICO check every three to five years. That's the credit model of a credit card company the most yep. the, and the most sophisticated credit card company has a fraud model you know that is involves you know, twelve to eighteen different factors and that's run you know on a daily basis essentially um so you know credit checks every three to five years fraud checks mostly once a day on the, on the high end using 12 to 18 factors. We use, it's over 200 factors now, we use 200 different factors once a second um, on everyone. So because okay. of that, we can you know massively reduce credit risk and massively reduce fraud risk uh, on transactions to a point at which we can charge you know, people 90% less, and be three times as profitable as a typical card company.
0: That makes sense. But then what's the underlying infrastructure and network you're using to implement sort of these direct transfers instantaneously? Because is it like a new infrastructure altogether? Or are you relying on an existing infrastructure?
1: No, so we, we're, we built all of our own uh, network. Um, and to move money between banks, There's only two ways to move money between banks in the U.S. There's literally only two ways. Uh, There's the ACH rails and the check rails, and everything else relies on those two. Like even the wire Mm -hmm. system sits on top of that. The credit card system sits on top of that. There's there's no other way. So we we, we use use those two rails, just like everyone else. But everything that sits on top of it, um, we built from scratch.
0: Got it. And so, what else sits sits on top of that? That's like all of these other intermediary functions that you're talking about that you are doing with the help of software.
1: Yeah.
0: Very, very interesting. Um, So, how has the response been to this? Uh, You know, like, what is your strategy in terms of getting more customers and more merchants on board? Where are you focusing, and what's the response been like?
1: So. We have a you know a long tail list of merchants. So we now have over a thousand e-commerce companies that use our product. But our bulk merchants really are massive public companies. So we have a couple of Fortune fifties as our clients. We have uh, multiple multi-billion-dollar retailers as our clients. Um, that allow us, you know, to and we'll launch a couple of those in the next actual two months or so. Um, where we'll take over the payment flow for some really, really well-known companies. Um, oh. So we, you know, we play the two ends of the sphere, right? So our long tail allows us to build the software and and test our hypotheses and have a short sales cycle and you know get real transaction volume, so we can you know build better, you know, better clearance engine. Whereas really our our main clients are massive retailers.
0: That's amazing, and I think that sort of gives you uh, immediate scale, yeah. and that's really good from a startup perspective. As you you know you, you can think about expanding further, and I think a lot of this network thing is just about volume and getting more people through the door, and it helps make your product better and just the whole value proposition better as so. well.
1: Yeah, the former the former CEO of Visa, Joe Sonner, is the chair of our board, and as yeah. he'll put it, as as he would put it, um. It's a it's a volume game right it's, okay. it's, it's um, that's how payments works the higher your volume the lower your cost the lower your cost the better prices you can give to your retailers and that's the flywheel
0: yeah no definitely so so I, I think it uh, this is a very clear explanation of exactly what the business model is and exactly where cash fits in the payment landscape but then um, we do see that the payment space is getting crowded. You have people working in different aspects of the value chain. Some people focusing just on merchant point-of-sale devices. Some people focusing on the customer side. Some people focusing on the underlying infrastructure. Then you have blockchain uh, companies coming up, just thinking about how they can think from a pay- how they can think about payments differently. So with so many different mechanisms and underlying rails just being the same, that's the ACH and the check rails. How do you see the payment landscape evolving in the medium to long term, or even in the near term for that
1: matter? Look, I I think it's relatively obvious by now that um, technology will do to payments what it did um, to retail about a decade and a half ago, um, which is that payments will, in 15 years from now, payments will not look at all like it does today. Um, the question is, what will it look like? Now, I'm fairly bullish on my company. I liked what we're doing. I like <laughs> the, the, the tax we're taking. But if you think there are, you know, there are alternatives to my company, right? There are people who are, um, there are decentralized ledger people, mostly blockchain, but there are other ones. Right. There are people who are working on a new interbank network to replace, right. you know, the. ACH, or check rails. And mm-hmm. then on the third option, there's us. And we take, we say the ledger will not change. The underlying network will not change. We just have to build software for, to compensate for
0: all the shortcomings. So that's basically uh, putting a beautiful wrapper around sort of the old. Yeah, Like yeah, our like well,
1: at least, uh, at least our assumption is that for the near near term, the. The underlying system will not change and the ledger will not change. Now it may change in the long run. Um, and I hope I hope it does. Uh I, you know, uh, I bought my first Bitcoin at under a dollar. So like I'm 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 I hope it does. I hope Bitcoin takes off. I hope or at least I hope a blockchain technology takes off and becomes the way we do things. Cause it, you know, if you read the, the original Bitcoin paper, it is just beautiful. If you're a nerd, that's as exciting to you as, as, you know, I can't think of anything else that's exciting. Uh, uh, It's fantastic. Um, But I think there are lots of both technical and regulatory issues, and that in the near term, we have to take the world around us as a given. Um, So you can think of what we're doing as, you know, as the Tesla, you know, auto drive. It's not quite auto drive, it's not quite. You know, it doesn't, it's still a car on a road, um, mm-hmm. but it's better than everything else. So that's that's our assumption in the, in the medium term. But look, in the long run, I think it's, um, we have reasons why we do what we think we're doing the right thing, but it's almost certainly that nothing will look like it, it, like it does in 15 years from now. It's just, it is just absolutely insane to think the world of payments runs on COBOL code written in the 60s or 70s, <laughs> clearing transaction based on 20 random digits. That's just insane. Like that's, I like really hope really, that's
0: not the case.
1: I mean, if you describe that to the average person, like not take someone who knows nothing about payments, but knows something about computers, and describe them how the payment system works. And a person will just look at you like, you're the most insane thing ever. It's, it's, it'd be the, the payment system works in the following way. Imagine if we had to send emails, but every time you had to send an email, you typed it up, you hit send, then that somehow got converted to a telegram and went over the old telegram rails and then got to you and got retranslated to your you know, email system. That's just, that's just insane. That can't, that can't, that's not sustainable. That's not how things should work.
0: That sort of tells me like that's more from the U.S. perspective, right? I think, and that's largely because I think a payments revolution came to the U.S. sooner than some of the other countries, and now that whole infrastructure is so infiltrated, it's hard to change. But you take an example like India, and you think about what the government is doing there with the United yeah. Payments Interface. The idea is the same that they still have the email address as like your identity. Mm-hmm. then this whole telegram process is replaced by a much faster system that's biometrics enabled and the authentication happens instantaneously. Um, uh, so do you think there's opportunities for the U.S. to like learn something from uh, even things happening in other countries and perhaps even adopt those uh, yeah. in, in the coming years?
1: Yeah, um, I think Narendra Modi should be, um, you know, his picture should be on the wall of the Federal Reserve Building.
0: Um, <laughs>
1: There are, look, and I know demonetization has been somewhat painful, but what's happening in India is just fascinating. And it's the type of thing where um, you'd say, man, someone should do something about this. And uh, it looks like Narendra Modi decided that someone should be him. Um, So, look, I I think there are uh, very few places in the world where payments is done properly, right. um, I think India looks like it will be it. Um, and what they're doing is just absolutely fascinating, uh, And it seems like they're doing it right. Um, but the rest of the world, honestly, the system, the underlying systems are so entrenched and so, you know, screwed up beyond repair that you'd have to almost start from scratch. And the assumption is that, our assumption is that someone at some point will. But in the meantime, we're going to build the interface layer so that when the underlying system gets fixed, we can use that as well. But the interface layer, we can build now. We have all the tools we need to build a better interface layer.
0: Right. You move on to like an API-based world. It can yeah. just plug and chug into like the new things coming in, and that's yeah. the right approach to go towards it. I think nobody wants to crash, uh, like you know, crash and burn, and like being the person that takes this entrenched giant and replaces it with something that's new, because that's going to take definitely some time yeah. to get established, and it's it's not an easy task by any means. And on on a similar note, right? I think as we're talking about payments in the future, and given your perspectives here. What are your thoughts on the push by lots of countries, including the U.S., to keep going towards a cashless era for financial inclusion? Should the goal be to have be cashless or less cash, given that cash still serves a very important purpose?
1: I mean, if you think of like, the, um, the move to digital payments in the U.S., it's been fascinating um, at the rate at which dollar bills are disappearing at the point of sale um, right. over the course of the past little while. Um, now, the the problem in the world of payments is, look, money does, you know, three things, right? Uh, and it's easy to get rid of some of those functions in the digital world. But you still have to have 100% applicability, right? You can't have a world in which it works 99.9% of the time, right? Move fast sure. and break things in the world of money kills people. Um, so you need to have, ensure whatever you do has, you know, hundred percent coverage. And that's really hard to do. I think, you know, I think there was a, there was when, when debit cards were first introduced in the U S banks used to pay retailers money every time a debit card was used. Um, because they just recognized that it was a safer, better way of doing things than having dollar bills fly around. so I think I don't. I also think it's a matter of policy that not much needs to be done, that the and it's certainly not in the not the US, or US, Canada, or Europe, that the use of physical bills is, you know, shrinking okay. at a rapid pace, and that pace seems to be picking up. It seems to be hockey sticking. That in our lifetime, money like dollar bills will be rare. Um, yeah. But that's that's you know. It's one of those things where you don't want to create a system that's 99% perfect because that 1% is a big deal.
0: It is, and that's the hardest deal to get, right? For them, it might be most difficult to get access to any other means of payment. So you have to be careful around that. Yeah, I
1: I mean, even even what India is doing isn't really full demonetization, right? There's still... It's not. And I don't um,
0: think that's the goal either, right? I think if you if you if you read sort of the policy documents, I think everywhere they say less cash. They don't use the word cashless because yeah. I don't think that's an idealistic goal, especially given the you know the, the the situation you have in India, where for most people cash is still everything, and the barrier to use digital currency is so large that you, you have to be really careful how you tread those waters, and you can always leave back the last one or two percent, and that's never the most ideal situation. Yes yeah all right so great discussion but uh, switching gears a little bit here so we'd just love to know a bit more about so how has the journey been of founding a company given that you said earlier that you don't really think of yourself as an entrepreneur so how does it feel like being in those shoes and what have been some of your biggest hassles and biggest delights while working on cash um look it
1: it, it is if People, um, people always talk about how building a company is hard and being an entrepreneur is difficult. Um, I honestly have not found it hard or difficult. This is, you know, um, they, they, they say the best way to manage a work-life balance is to define your work as your life. Uh, yeah. and, and, and this honestly has been the case for me. Um, And I'm lucky in that the people who we work with are just absolutely brilliant. Uh, And so that's fun. And it's fun to be able to choose everyone you work with. It's fun to be able to decide, uh, be in charge of your own destiny. Um, If we, you know, if something goes wrong around here, it's because I screwed up. Um, Mm -hmm. And if something goes well, it's because, you know, we as a team did well. Uh, And that's fun. Uh, that, that is just incredibly rewarding. Um, but I'm not like most entrepreneurs or most people who start companies, I'm not by nature, a patient person. Uh, and that is a virtue that I've had to learn, especially dealing in the world of fintech. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm a trained lawyer, so I expected things to move slowly, but you know, uh, even then, um, some of the things we do take forever, right? Um, Fintech companies just can't, it's not like pushing code. Uh, you have to have real world business deals. And so those things take a while. Negotiating with banks takes a little, you know, takes more than a minute. So that stuff has been, um, you know, it's been a learning experience uh, on the virtue of patience. That's
0: fantastic. Um, and what advice would you have for people? looking to start a company in the current scenario in the fintech space either payments or even otherwise
1: um they just should do it, uh, it it's the <laughs> you know i uh so i went to business school then i went to law school and you um you face the world in which you can go you can leave you know wharton or any decent business school uh and go somewhere and make an obscene salary um while doing a job is relatively safe right you know the jobs that people coming out of Wharton get those jobs aren't disappearing anytime soon um so that's very attractive but you have to look at it as um a regret minimization um
0: that's like the Jed Bezos mentality
1: yeah so it's when you think of it that way it becomes starting a company becomes a non-brainer. It just just does. Uh, And I say this having been, you know, having worked on Wall Street. Um, It is, starting a company is just an absolute non-brainer. It's difficult. It is um, at times annoying. Uh, It pays way less uh, than you'd get paid, you know, doing anything at Goldman Sachs. Um, But on the other hand, it's incredibly rewarding. Uh, and you get to be in charge of your destiny, and uh, it's, it's highly valuable. So I'd say do it. The second thing I would say is this. Um, people like us who go to business school or go to law school or go become consultants um, often undervalue the uh, importance of product. Um, once things are done on Excel, someone has to build them. And uh that is incredibly important, so if you are going to start a comp- a technical company um, it is just absolutely imperative. It's more important to start a fintech company, knowing the tech part is more important than the finance part, like you just have to be able to understand technology and understand the minutia that uh and uh, at least be able to understand code. Um, now, look, uh, the our CTO last week pulled out every single piece of code I had written in the company uh, because <laughs> it was no longer adequate, and I am by far, by far by margin of you know 10,000, the worst developer in the company. Um, everything I ever write breaks, but it helps to be able to understand it. Um, so, uh, and, it's, and more importantly than understanding it, it helps to understand the value of it. Uh, if you're starting a fintech company and you think you can outsource the tech, you're just absolutely insane. Um, both are important.
0: That's good advice. And I think being in business school right now, you certainly see a mix of people. Although I would say that I am seeing a changing trend. Where if you spoke with people maybe two or three years ago with more of the business mindset, the whole mentality was that tech is the less important thing and that's something that we can outsource and we have to focus on the business model. And I've seen a change in the whole perspective that, you know, tech is actually more important and to figure out the technology behind these things is the most critical thing. The product needs to be right and everything else sits as a sort of supporting mechanism to make sure that the tech can be delivered. So I think uh, certainly seeing that change in trend here as well. So it aligns with what I'm seeing. Um, uh kaz that's all i had in my end any parting words of wisdom more than what you have said already which has been fantastic
1: no thanks for having me i really appreciate it um and uh obviously if i can be helpful to you or anyone else at Wharton, please feel free to reach out
0: uh we certainly will and thanks so much again and i, I hope you have a wonderful day ahead.
1: thanks a lot take care
0: all right Bye bye